are unfamiliar with the concepts of stages of change, aka the trans theoretical model, I would highly recommend listening to episode 12 of this podcast before delving into the topic of motivational interviewing, which I will be covering here. This episode could be viewed as part two of the aforementioned and is somewhat important to have as a base of understanding in order to fully grasp motivational interviewing. Violence is a fundamental disposition of non-force. Choosing not to endlessly bicker over a conflict, allowing for disagreements, and giving people the space to make poor decisions. Withholding the urge to punish and chastise is essential. Short of defending innocence from harm, force is something that should be as rare as diamonds. As every person you come into contact with will have a matrix of values, some of which will coincide with your own, while others may be opposed. Learning how to communicate peacefully with those of opposing values is a skill that can be learned and developed. As I have covered previously, like in episode 6, A Language for Life, where I spoke about Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, there are principles and concepts that can help refine one's skill in finding more peace and love within their relationships. There are even more techniques that we can employ in our communication with people in a broad array of contexts, however. One of them being the topic of this episode, motivational interviewing. As a method of conflict resolution, motivational interviewing is more of a therapeutic modality that was originally conceived to treat drug and alcohol addiction. It seeks not to tell addicts what is good for them, but tries to help them discover through their own process of self-awareness what is good for them, and to find an internal drive to achieve said good. MI is designed to be goal-oriented, to help clients achieve milestones. As with many of the concepts I discuss, motivational interviewing is highly person-centric. It takes a very individualized approach to its subjects, which may also mean leaving our prejudices, assumptions, and personal values at the door, at least until there can be some common ground discovered with the person which you are quote-unquote interviewing. Often in the addictions field, the model has been you need to put something into the person or, or change them or convince them mm-hmm. or confront them. And this is more of a drawing out of the person uh, approach. And uh, you mentioned ambivalence just yeah. a moment ago. And it's a place where people get stuck. They, they want to, they don't want to, and they have trouble moving off that space. And this is a way of helping people to resolve that ambivalence and, uh, and move on toward behavior change. It's both client-centered and directive, which is an odd combination Mm. in some folks' minds, Um, but very interested in the person's own perspective, very concerned with how they understand things and what they want with their lives, 
And at the same time, it's not just following the person. It's moving the person along in the direction of change. MI is self-explanatory in a sense, in that the aim is to elicit the personal motivation of the subject to want to voluntarily change negative behaviors. Getting to know the person you are engaging with when employing motivational interviewing is key. Understanding what makes them tick and following the bright spots on topics, people, or futures that inspire one to come alive. But it can also follow fears, as fears can be a powerful, if not a healthy, motivator. Asking questions like what your life will look like in five years if you don't change X behavior can evoke anxiety. But maybe that's the medicine we all need from time to time. And just to be clear, one must not superimpose one's own fears and aspirations onto his interviewee. We all have differing dreads and hopes based on our own wounds and experiences. So what might give me high levels of stress may not particularly bother someone else. Vice versa, what inspires or excites me may not do so for others. Motivational interviewing has been applied in all kinds of situations, including diplomatic relations, hostage negotiations, marriage counseling, and much more. It has even been taught to military personnel and police departments as a tool for interacting with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. In order to execute the method effectively, there are, however, five principles that should be observed. They are as follows, expressing empathy, developing discrepancy, avoiding arguments, rolling with resistance, and supporting self-efficacy. Let's go over each point. Why did you do this, Allie? This is terrible. Oh, great! <laughs> this is Michael's giraffe. He's crying now. Why did you do this? Cause. Cause is not an answer. Active listening. Ray, that doesn't work. It works. I just use it on the worst kids in the neighborhood. Would you? Look at this. Look what she just did. Just try it. Try it. No, Ray. I'll do it. A... You want me to do it? No, I'll do no, it. no, no, no. Okay. Allie, let's talk about what you did. I don't want to talk. Are you feeling angry? Reflect back. You're, you're angry? Yes. Okay. But it's not okay to rip up toys when we're angry. Ah, uh, 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 judgmental. <laughs> you are angry because... Um... Because it used to be your toy. Oh. Yes. I see, I see. You think that um, mommy and daddy pay too much attention to Michael and Jeffrey. Right, okay, I was handling this. They get everything. Right, and you're upset because we gave them your old giraffe. 
I still liked it. But you weren't playing with it. But that doesn't matter, though, because <laughs> it was still yours. And you're mad because we gave it to Michael without asking you, right? Right. Well, uh, Mommy and Daddy made a mistake. And, and everybody makes mistakes, right, Mommy? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you feel better now, Allie? Yes, can I have the giraffe? Well, it's broken, honey. I know, I want to try to fix it for Michael. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you, Daddy. <laughs> oh. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. Can't believe it. It's pretty amazing. Oh. You did it. Anything else you need taken care of while I'm around here? <laughs> no. What? What's the matter? <laughs> Nothing with you, obviously. Don't go by me. I'm a natural. <sighs> Principle number one, expressing empathy. If you did not recognize that clip, it was taken from an episode of the show, Everybody Loves Raymond. It's a great and amusing example of how you can express empathy with someone through active listening. By truly listening and hearing what they have to say, then mirroring back to them the feelings and concerns they are expressing, it can create a feeling of being truly understood. Validating the anxieties, fears, or even the aspirations of your interviewee is crucial to creating trust in the relationship and furthering the conversation. This will cause dialogue to be far more open and honest, which is really important in helping one find their motivation. Principle number two, develop discrepancy. Where are you and where would you like to be? Or better yet, what are your values? And does your behavior align with them? These kinds of questions are good at developing discrepancies with your subject. Discovering what one's firmly held beliefs are, as well as what their ideal future is, will help you to find out if they are truly acting out those beliefs or moving towards said future. Once you have established the ideal future, Contrast it with where you are now and ask, does it match? Are you going in the right direction to attain this future? The discrepancies between who you are and who you would like to be can be uncomfortable, but that isn't always a bad thing. Taking an honest evaluation of oneself and comparing it to your ideal is vital to finding motivation and making a plan towards behavior change. Principle number three, avoiding arguments. In MI, remember what your goal is, to tap into the motivation of the subject you are interviewing to help behavior change. You are not there to impose your values or have a debate. 
A good axiom to follow would be, quote, avoid the writing reflex. That is to say, when someone says something that is antithetical to what you or I might believe, or maybe it's factually incorrect, or even offends a fundamental part of your identity, avoid the urge to correct, argue, or chastise. Debates will only divert you from your goal and bring tension that is difficult to overcome further along in the conversation. You are not there to ensure someone has all the correct beliefs and behaviors. You are there to help them find motivation. Principle number four, rolling with resistance. There's inevitably going to be pushback, suspicion, or even laziness when it comes to making behavior changes. Expect to encounter these types of problems but don't try to fight fire with fire. If there is resistance, try reflective listening or explore it in a non-judgmental way. If you are finding a great deal of difficulty on any particular uh, topic, you can always leave it and come back to the subject at another time. And remember, the stages of change. There are some beliefs and habits that people are not ready to change right away. So work to recognize this and roll with it, so to speak. Principle number five, support self-efficacy. Often I will talk about personal responsibility as a vitally important component to peace and nonviolence. We must all take account of our own actions in the world and how that contributes to or detracts from peace. For many, especially those who do not ever want to take personal responsibility, it is not because they are simply a bad person or they have some fundamental character flaw. It can in many cases be due to their own lack of confidence in themselves. To take on personal responsibility, you must first believe that it is a burden uh, you have the strength to shoulder. In motivational interviewing, it is really helpful to recognize and draw to the forefront people's natural strengths and talents. The areas in their life where they might excel, either in one's temperament or how they relate to others. Helping others recognize their own abilities is the first step to helping them take more responsibility and discover the tools to change within themselves as opposed to relying on codependent relationships or addictive habits. Though there is some overlap, self-efficacy should not be confused with self-esteem. Self-esteem generally refers to how one views oneself on the whole, what you might believe your own self-worth to be whereas self-efficacy has more to do with your level of confidence in your own abilities, regardless about how you feel about yourself on the whole. For example, I have very little confidence in my ability to crochet, but my lack in that area does not make me feel like a lesser person or unworthy. And vice versa, one can have extremely high degrees of self-efficacy whilst maintaining a very low self-esteem. Becoming more self-efficacious 
can have positive effects on your self-esteem, however. These are the core principles of motivational interviewing that should be observed in order to carry it out effectively. Express empathy, develop discrepancy, avoid arguments, roll with resistance, and develop self-efficacy. I would like to say here also that even if you are not trying to do MI on somebody, these can still be really good relational tools to help you have deeper and more meaningful connections with others. Now that we have covered these principles, let's talk about the four processes, or four action steps, if you will, that can make this technique successful. They are as follows, engaging, focusing, evoking, and planning. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Just wanted to remind you that you can reach out to me on social media or email. I'm on Twitter, just search The Peaceful Way Podcast, and Facebook, same thing. You can also email me at uh, peacefulwaypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find the podcast on the website, www.thepeacefulway.ca. And you'll see all my uh, episodes as well as blogs and stuff like that. Um, Also, don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review if you enjoy the show. That really helps it out. And make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And lastly, I just want to remind everyone, if you would like to support financially, you can at www.patreon.com forward slash the peaceful way. All right, thanks. Let's get back into the show. These are the four action steps you need to take in order to successfully implement MI. Just a note, these are not the same as the principles that I discussed earlier. Those are more guiding ethics, whereas this is the practical side of what you actually need to do. Step 1. Engaging. When beginning motivational interviewing, Start by engaging. Learn about the person you are talking to. Find out what their needs are, even their hobbies, family life, and so forth. Seeking to know about the person you are talking with will help to open up areas of conversation and progress towards motivation. By using reflective listening, let the person know that you hear and understand what they are saying. And stay curious. Developing your curiosity about the subject is going to dramatically increase your engagement with them. Not only that, the topic you know the most about is the topic of you. So probing questions and exploratory statements about who that person is and what drives them is going to go a long way towards achieving your goals. And remember, Disinterest in the person can hurt your own cause. Dismissing their values or concerns is not a recipe for success. 
you get lost at some point in the process. You can always return to step one and begin the engagement once again until you find a way forward. This step will help you and the subject identify problem areas of their own life through self-diagnosis. Remember, you are not trying to tell someone what is wrong with them. You are helping them identify problem areas for themselves. Step two, focusing. Once you have engaged with the client and successfully identified behaviors or beliefs they may want to change, now is the point where you zoom in on those areas through probing questions. Begin asking more specific details about the topic. Ask them how it makes them feel, if they believe it is beneficial, what other costs and benefits, etc. And try not to get lost in the weeds or go on rabbit trails. Keep keying in on problem areas by their own admission. Focusing is an important role for the MI practitioner to take. As with other steps, it is primarily client-directed. This step requires an active role from the interviewer in order to be successful. Step 3. Evoking When someone starts change talk on their own through a conversation, this is a great opportunity to start, quote, evoking the change. This is often called the why of change, as it approaches the deepest needs you are addressing through any particular change. Follow the bright spots in your exchange when talking. Repeat back to the person the world they want to live in, but in different words. Or elaborate on the change they might be hinting at. This will arouse an even greater desire to change and the subject will begin to take greater interest in developing their own solutions on how to make a better world for themselves. One way to recognize a good time to start evoking is when you notice someone is talking in a particularly emotional way about a topic. These moments are gold mines for motivation, and recognizing when the right time to evoke is key. And moving forward. Step 4. Planning. The final process is planning. Once your subject has responded positively to engaging, focusing, and evoking, you can begin the work of planning for the future. This can also be referred to as the how of change. Creating an actionable and specific time-bound plan is the zenith of motivational interviewing. This is where the change actually happens. In a clinical setting, a practitioner will write out a plan with a patient. But it doesn't always have to be this formal. It can be as simple as a verbal agreement to act on said plan. Often, when people say they are going to do something out loud to those in their peer group, they are more likely to actually follow through as to not appear flaky or unreliable. You can also hold them accountable to the plan by asking them how it's going the next time you see them. You can help your subject devise a plan by making sure it's reasonable, 
and achievable. If a plan is too grandiose, it can become discouraging and sap people of their motivation. Where if it is small enough that it can be reasonably accomplished, it will actually help build confidence for achieving slightly larger goals in the future. Motivational interviewing takes practice. It is definitely not something that comes naturally to most people. Indeed, it is a skill that has to be nurtured in order to be effective. It also requires a particular disposition that may not always be effective in all contexts. However, if you choose to employ some of the techniques often enough, it is going to turn into second nature eventually and could actually change your own thinking about people you are talking to uh, in order to seek more empathy and understanding. One of my personal issues with MI is the name. It is far too formal and it gives it a feeling of being useful in only a professional context, which I think is wrong. It can be used in all sorts of non-formal environments with friends, family, coworkers, and even mere acquaintances. I think a better term would be motivational engagement to evoke a more common usage and application to your everyday life. To be clear, if you were to employ motivational interviewing every time you talk to someone, it could become mechanical and exhausting. It's better to get good at recognizing when opportunities to use MI might present themselves. Perhaps when someone is opening up about an issue they're having in their life, or if they start questioning a toxic belief system, say about the moral use of force in society, or any other number of situations where they express that they have moved beyond an ambivalent stage of change and are in contemplation. It is better to use it organically in conversations as opposed to trying to shoehorn it into a dialogue, in which case you would risk shutting down uh, your subject to wanting to hear anything you might have to say. People are generally good at detecting inauthenticity. So perhaps motivational interviewing can help you find deeper connections and more cohesion in all sorts of relational contexts. It can be useful in addictions, mental health problems, conflicts, work environments, and so forth. But remember, we are trying to tap into people's own internal why. What makes them tick? What is it that drives them? And the answer to these questions can be illuminating. <laughs>